be aware. You cannot eat a, a crusty bread in space. Breadcrumbs in space, <laughs> they float around. So you don't want that. That's why they eat flatbread <laughs> and tortilla for the, for the moment. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Hello, my friends. I am back from my brief vacation. I took some time off for my wedding, which went amazing. Thank you for asking. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago. We had perfect weather, and it was outdoors at this beautiful sculpture park outside of Boston. The day was filled with many an emotional speech, excellent local food, of course, and we danced the night away to the most banger soul band. It was everything I could have asked for, and to be honest, I don't feel any different now except that we threw this giant party for all our friends and family, which is always a good thing. And now I'm back, and I hope you're in for a ride because today we are going to Mars. Well, sort of. We're talking with Bert Champ, an agronomy expert from Belgium who's working on this giant multi-year research project on how to grow and make sourdough on Mars. I know, I had so many questions too. Like, first of all, why sourdough? And how would you actually get the ingredients you need to Mars? And then what can you actually grow or make realistically when you get there? As you can probably imagine, there's a million questions you need to consider for a mission like this. Like gravity, for example. The fact that there is none on the spaceship, so your plants might grow all whack, and then floating breadcrumbs might actually kill you. So lots of fun stuff we're getting into today. I am so excited to hear what you think. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. We can chat on Instagram at farm.2.future. Before we dive in, here's a quick message from a friend of the pod. Howdy, y'all. We're really glad you're listening to the podcast. We are big fans. My name's Neil Dudley, and I'm the vice president of Peterson's Farms. We make top-quality bacon, sausage, and ham from humanely raised animals that are never fed any animal byproducts. So what does that mean for you? It means delicious, healthy proteins made with care, that you can feel really good about eating and feeding your family. To learn more, visit petersonsfarms.com. Now that's with a D, P-E-D-E-R-S-O-N-S-F-A-R-M-S.com. And since we're fans of the podcast, we want to give you a discount code. Use farm to future and get 10% off. Thank you. See you there. Today we have a very exciting topic. We're doing some space travel and we are talking to agronomy expert Bert Schomp. Welcome to the podcast, Bert. Thank you. Hi. Welcome, Jane. Before we dive into the exciting mission to Mars and what you're working on now, I'd love if you could give us kind of your take on after working in vertical farming for over a decade. So, uh, you know, we hear this term a lot, vertical farming, and there's a lot of hype around it, right? And my understanding is, you know, there's a lot of great benefits like saving water and energy. You can have really productive farms on a small plot of land, but it's also not great for biodiversity or soil health if that's what you care about. So can you maybe give us an overview of like, here's what vertical farming today is great for, and here may be like the limits of where we are at. Yeah, sure. So in the last decade, what we studied and what we looked at is um, definitely the vertical farming as such, but then not 
the leafy greens and the microgreens that you know in, in for like example the known famous restaurants where they have a setup of a vertical farming system where everybody can look at the purple lights where the plants are grown but that's just salad so salad is not a very expensive crop so it actually is not very useful to grow salad or a microgreen in a vertical farming well as long as there is agricultural land available it makes not really sense of having a high cost facility to just grow lettuce. Uh, right. if, we, if we talk in a different region in the world, uh, for example, in Japan, where they are really focused on food safety, uh, of course, then it makes sense again, because people are willing to pay more for the green grown salad. Mm. But as long as there is agricultural land available and it's sufficient to grow it outdoor, why grow it in an indoor farm? So that doesn't really make sense. So for me, if you talk about vertical farming, when it's when it becomes interesting, it's only for high-value crops or for specific parts in the crop growth. So for rooting, uh, flowering, maybe specific uh, enhancing of uh, biomolecules for a phytopharmacy, but not for the, the leafy greens where that, that everybody is promoting. But of course, it's a first step to get people known and, and get them let them taste of a vertical farming system. So... If you look at the importance of vertical farming, I think it's most important that we uh, focus on high value crops and on very difficult parts in the world where we cannot grow food anymore because soil health is not sufficient enough. There is not enough water. I think for those specific cases, there we can uh, use vertical farming systems. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we can't get full off of lettuce, right? <laughs> off of salad. No. Uh, when you say high value crop, how are you measuring that? So high-value crop is, for example, uh, herbs or spices that are very costly on the market. Could be also other plants like ornamental plants that we buy, for example. Uh, a lot of my study was ornamental crops in the past, not on food. Mm. So like those flowers? Are quite high, yeah, flowers, uh, room plants, potted plants. Oh. Those are high-value crops, high-value plants that are on the market. Yeah, the, For that specific purpose, a vertical farming uh, could be very sufficient. Uh, also very costly uh, food. If you cannot grow it outdoor or you have to import it and use a lot of fossil fuel to import it in, into your country, then maybe you can grow it yourself in, in an indoor farm. So for those purposes, mm. I think it really uh, it could be really an option and an, an alternative to grow uh, food. Interesting. Okay. But these days you're working on vertical farming applications for food, right? Yeah. Uh, can you tell us how you got involved with the Mission to Mars initiative? Well, I was uh, as a researcher on vertical farming. I, I saw the the project of Space Bakery, so uh, that's something Puratos started with. Uh, so Puratos is a, a company actually specialized in, in uh, bakery, patisserie, and chocolate industry. So maybe not direct in space uh, research, of course. But a few years ago, they had the idea. They, they existed hundred years, and they had the idea: how can we be more sustainable on Earth? So they did some calculations and they looked into different sectors and then they came up with the idea, why not bake the first loaf of bread into space? Um, it, it looks very science fiction, of course, but uh, we will not go to Mars tomorrow, of course. So uh, the whole idea was, let us create a mission to Mars where we, the end goal is of baking a bread on Mars. But of course, the whole process or evolving to that process, we, we know that from space research, there is a lot of applications that can be applicable on Earth also. So the whole learning process of baking a loaf of bread on Mars 
gives us ideas and opportunities to be more sustainable in wheat grown and grow other crops on a more sustainable way on earth also. So the whole process is more or less inspiring our customers, inspiring our own people, researchers internally also, collaborating with research institutes. And, and the end goal is a more sustainable plant growth and a more sustainable food uh, system. So that's the whole mission to Mars, actually. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know there's been a lot of food applications that have come out of NASA's research, like microwavable meals, for example. And when I think of astronaut food, I think of those little packets of dried ice cream and cookies. Um, So Mm -hmm. not very palatable. Um, So I guess, like, how did this framing around fresh food come about? And why was that kind of imperative for this project? So... The fresh food came in because there is a lot of studies on the ESA, so that's the European uh, Space Agency. They also had, did a lot of research on that, also NASA is working on that, and they, they want to look more and more into fresh uh, food grown in, in space because yeah, if people are in space for a longer period, they want to d- diversify their food also. You cannot give the astronauts mm-hmm. every week a pill with all the nutritions because they will get bored eventually. So they, they want a, a diverse food that it's also more healthy. So that's why they start looking and can we grow actually a food or crops in space? So there is a lot of interest, but of course it opens a lot of questions about how do plants tackle gravity? How do plants cope with re- space radiation? How do seeds react to space radiation? So that's all stuff that we just don't know. How is the microbiome that is living together with the roots? How is that tackled in space? Will we have the same yield? What to do with the oxygen and the CO2 that's used uh, during the photosynthesis? So that's all stuff that that we just start to to learn and how to cope with those problems. So it's really very new research uh, that we are involved in. Uh, yeah, it opens a lot of questions. Uh, that That's something we learned already. Yeah, fascinating questions. I'm just picturing like seeds floating in the spaceship and, you know, maybe they like turn a different color or their composition changes with the radiation. But I imagine each of those questions leads to some kind of experiment, right? So, um, but maybe you can walk us through each of those things and give us a sense or a taste of what the farm looks like and what you're actually growing. And I think based Mm -hmm. on our last conversation, sounds like you guys are creating sourdough of the future. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So what we what we did actually in the project is that we we built uh, the second largest closed biosphere actually in the world. So we can be very proud of that Mm -hmm. actually. So that's standing in Brussels within Piratos headquarters. But of course, the whole mission to Mars and the whole project, we learned that we don't have all the knowledge internally ourselves. So of course, we have to collaborate with a lot of research institutes and a lot of uh, industrial partners. So for the vertical farming system, we collaborated with the urban crop systems. So that's a closed biosphere where we can grow a lot of the, the normal crops that we know today we can grow inside of course we are limited to the height of the plant of course because we are growing in multiple layers but for Mm -hmm. the moment we are growing specific wheat cultivars we also tried smaller wheat cultivars that nasa developed so that's apogee and perigee wheat they are specially selected for vertical farming systems because they are smaller so we can put more layers on top of each other in the same biosphere on the other hand next to the wheat we also have cowpea because cowpea it's an African bean, and we believe that cowpea can enhance the health benefits of the bread-like 
concept that we on the in the end will make. Uh, cowpea is also has also edible leaves and a lot of vitamins in it, a lot of uh, proteins and fiber content. So we can enhance the health benefits of eating a loaf of bread. In the end, uh, hmm. one thing that we are uh, that we don't have yet is an oil source. So in the coming tests and years, we will look at an oil source. Maybe it will come from seeds, come from plants, can come from cellular fermentation. That's something we don't already know, but that's for the next test, of course. So in inside those pots, we grow our plants. All the plant growth is followed up and monitored. With a live uh, detection system, we use plant sensors. It's actually like uh, the Fitbit or the, the heartbeat monitor for a human, but then for plants. Mm. We uh, follow up a bit the sap flow, uh, the leaf and stem thickness on a continuous way so we can predict the growth and the yield. And that's also yeah, to gain a lot of data. And with that data, we build a 3D plant model. Why we do that is because yeah, we have to be very sufficient with our natural resources that we use, of course, inside those closed biosphere. And if we want to optimize the plant growth, yeah, that we need a lot a big data set. And we can do that best uh, by using a 3D model of a plant. So we have a university collaborating with us who is creating a 3D model of the wheat. So in that way, we can predict the, the most suitable option of growing wheat and on, in the most sufficient way with the best yield. So we, mm. in that way, we don't have to do all the experiments again and again and again by changing one parameter so we can be more efficient in experiments. So we can work a bit faster by optimizing the 3D model first and then put them into tests in the biosphere. Um, What else do we do from the straw and the the rest material that's otherwise is waste? Uh, Of course, we only harvest the grains to eat and from the cowpea, we also harvest the leaves because they are edible. But all the rest of the plant materials is in all the other ways, it's it's waste, but we turn it into biochar. And biochar is something, yeah, it's a oxygen-free burning process, so there is no CO2 involved. So it's environmentally friendly. It's a bit complex to create, but it, at the end you get the black moss. It looks like a bit charcoal-y uh, moss. And that's full of nutrients, actually. That's the nutrients that were embedded inside the plant and the leaves, the stems, and so on. So we can reuse that biochar in next cultivational trials. So in that way, we need to use less resources, less fertilizer in the next trial. And that way, we are a bit more uh, sufficient in our use of resources. So when we harvest then, on the end of the trial, we we can grow uh, four harvest cycles a year normally. And we have a quite high yield already. Uh, I think the last trials went up to... uh, 20 tons so that's uh, very much if we compare it to an open field it's only four tons mm. so we were very high in yield and very sufficient in that way and if we harvest then what we do is we create a sourdough why we are using a sourdough because we believe sourdough can of course enhance flavor complexity to a, a bread that's something we already know Piratus is very involved into using sourdough again for making bread instead of yeast, but also yeast cells are not mainly available in space. So that's why sourdough is also more stress resilient. If something happens, the sourdough needs to survive in space. Also, if we want to implement the beans, like for example, cowpea, if we want to implement them inside the sourdough of baking a bread, most of the people don't really like the beany flavor that's inside them. So by fermentation, we can get rid of that taste. So that's also mm. an advantage of using a sourdough for bread making uh, that we can yeah, get rid of specific flavors of tastes that we don't like as a, as a consumer. 
So from the grains and the cereals that we harvest, we mill them. And then, of course, we make a sourdough of it. And in the end, we want to try to make a bread-like concept. Will it look like a bread? That's something we don't know yet. Of course, in space, you have to tackle also the problem of not having breadcrumbs. Because, yeah, breadcrumbs in space, <laughs> they float around. So you don't want that. So probably the bread in the end will not have any crust. But that's something we have to work around. Huh. So that's quite quite important. That's something from the European Space Agency. Somebody told us, yeah, be aware. You cannot eat a, a crusty bread in space. So uh, that's why they eat flatbread <laughs> and tortilla for the, for the moment uh, in space, eh? ah. for example. But of course, if we live on Mars in the future, maybe uh, we will be able to eat it anyway. Eh? So uh, that's something that we don't know yet. But it, we, we were able to uh, to bake the first breads, so uh, it really worked. So we were quite happy with that. Of course, there is some optimization necessary to have it look like a, a decent bread, of course. But uh, the first breads were all, already made. Uh, yeah. Wow. How do they taste? Uh, they taste quite good. Uh, it's not the best <laughs> bread that I had, uh, <laughs> but I didn't expect that also, of course. It's something we have to work around and we have to still optimize the whole process, of course. But you if have you to look have at an the... oven on the spaceship, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are okay. different techniques also. Uh, I think there is a vacuum oven uh, that was some engineers put together already. There is also the steaming concept, but then you have the, the hot water bubble when you open the oven, that will come out. So that's some, also something that you have to tackle. So there are different problems that you come across when you look at baking a bread in, in space. So it's not that easy uh, as we thought, but we, we knew that in front uh, that we will, would face some problems. Also, the microbiome is, is a very big topic. We have a partner looking very specific in how a collaboration between growing plants in space and the microbiome level, how, how is that working together? How are those micro-specific bacteria, how are they helping plants in nutrient uptake? And maybe we can use those applications also in Earth, eh? uh, if there are specific microbiomes. And that's something we already know a bit, but not very in detail. But how can they enhance the plant growth? Maybe the plants can benefit from specific bacteria to have nutrient, mm. better nutrient uptake, water uptake be more stress resilient. Uh, and that's something we already see. Yeah? So that's a very interesting uh, research. So when you say microbiome, do you mean the bacteria in the soil that you yeah. like you put in as an input? So um, what, what we do is we control the whole environment of the mi microbiome. So in the air, in the water, in the root system, in the plants itself, also in the seeds when we start with the sowing. And all those microbacteria are plated out and we, we check them if there are any new bacteria involved. And maybe we see mm. uh, plant reactions on a specific moment. And then we check also the microbiome in the air, the water, the whole thing that I just mentioned. And if we see relations between them, then maybe we can relate specific plant reactions to a specific microbiome level. We can probably decide then, okay, that specific bacteria has an effect on that specific part of the plant growth or in that specific plant growth phase. Maybe it's uh, important when uh, the seeds are just rooting. Maybe it's important when the flowering is forming. So it's all coming down to specific microbacteria that have an effect on specific plant growth systems. Hmm. And, and what about the radiation? What have you been learning about that? So space radiation is actually quite interesting. We see different results. Uh, some plants can't handle it. 
Other plants are really good at handling it. For example, we see plants that can have 2,000 times the dose that is lethal for human beings, and they still grow perfectly mm. with the same yield. But we see plants also dying after specific radiation. Uh, an interesting fact that we already found is that, for example, if we use a specific low amount of radiation, uh, that we get higher protein content. Mm. So that could be very interesting when you harvest, of course, that wheat, for example. So that could be very interesting. If it will be for all the cultivars, of course, that's then, again, the problem with plants. Every cultivar of a plant is different and reacting different. So we have to check that, of course. But for some cultivars, we saw it already. And it can be possible that a little dose of radiation could be a benefit for plant growth, actually. But we are doing now the second and third generation of the sowing. So we have to verify that, of course, because first sowing generation is always a bit tricky. We are not always sure if yeah, response is really accurate to the, the parameter that we gave them. But if you sow out a second or a third generation, you can verify better the results. So that's hmm. something we are doing now. But we are quite positive that low radiation can have a, a benefit for protein content. Huh. Would have never made that connection. And of course, you probably want to do it in a way that's safe for the humans, right? So that the yeah, humans don't yeah, get yeah, radiated. Yeah. So we have a special partner, mm -hmm. the, the nuclear center in Belgium, who is... Uh, tackling with that problem. They're also uh, doing the tests with microgravity. So they have a random positioning machine who is uh, growing plants in a, a cube that's constantly changing position. So you see that, for example, mm. starch content is a measurement for uh, gravity in plants. And you see that the starch content is not at the same spot where you would expect it when you change the gravity in plants. They don't really know how to grow. So that's a problem we, we need to tackle, and that's what they are researching, for example. But they also cover the space radiation. So they give a, a specific dose of radiation to seeds, but also to plants. And then mm. they check if we sow them or if we uh, monitor the plant growth, how are they reacting? Is the yield still the same? Do we see some radiation doses still left in the yield that we are harvesting? So that's also something we don't want, of course. So that's our all topics that, uh, that they are looking at. But it's very uh, yeah, preliminary research, of course. It's really the first steps that we are making there. It's very exciting. Yeah, wow. So this black box that like shuffles the plant around, I would imagine the plant just falls out of the soil and, and doesn't uh, take. But how does it actually... So the plant grows in a specific medium where it's okay. fixating itself. So it cannot fall out. So that's mm. one thing we tackled. And also the light source is connected just atop of the box. So it moves with ah, the box. Okay. So otherwise the plant would still know where the light is and then it would grow to the light. So I to see. tackle that problem, you have to fix the light on top of the box and it has to move with the whole box. Hmm. So uh, it's quite difficult actually. If you, if you start thinking about it of how to tackle the gravity problem and you, you want to have your light source where plant grows under and you want to move it around to tackle the problem of microgravity and to test it, it's, it's quite complex to have a decent setup to test uh, the whole experiment. Uh, yeah, definitely. Because in my head, you have the spaceship and maybe like a little greenhouse room where you have these rows of plants. But with the gravity problem you just mentioned, plus the light source, it you probably can't structure it that way. Do you, no, 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 no. Have you guys yeah, found like a, a structure that might work? Yeah, we, so we 
the microgravity, we only test in a small scale, of course, in a lab scale. Of course, if we go to vertical farming, we don't take into account the gravity problem because we think probably uh, other techniques will solve that problem. So in our vertical farming system, in our closed biosphere, we're closed of the outdoor environment, but we're not shut off from gravity, of course. Got it, got it. Okay, so maybe that's like a future biosphere where it's like a gravity That could be a future <laughs> biosphere. Uh, and I'm wondering actually how you would then tackle the problem because we grow in a hydroponics system. So that's why, uh, uh, that's a soilless system. We only use, use lava rock because that's something huh. for sure that we can find on Mars. And it's a hydroponic system. So that means that the water is continuously flowing around in the roots. But if you would make it without gravity, then I think you would have a problem. <laughs> so I'm not sure how you, how you would tackle that problem. Uh, maybe use aeroponics. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's a yeah. different uh, topic. Right. <laughs> then the water would just be spilling everywhere. You might be drowning yeah. in your plants then. Yeah. So tackling the problem of gravity is, I think, more important. than. Uh... <laughs> but there is gravity on Mars. <laughs> so that's not really uh, the issue. Uh, if you would go to Mars and we, we would grow plants... It would be more a problem in space and onto the travel. Uh, yeah. How long does it take to travel to Mars? I think it's like all, many uh, years, almost two it? years uh, to, okay. to go there. And then I heard a few days ago, it depends when you want to go back. I think you only can stay for a, a month or so, and then you have to go back because of the energy that you need to come back. Or oh. you could use the slingshot behind Mars, but then I think <laughs> I thought it was then two years extra traveling time. <laughs> oh, so uh, wow. if you if you have to go around Mars, uh, <laughs> so I, I don't think that's an option. Uh, yeah, but I'm not the expert oh, wow. in uh, space traveling, uh, of course. Uh, that's what <laughs> Just I heard. The that's what feeding I heard. the astronauts. Yeah. Wow. So if you miss your train, so to speak, you got to wait two yeah, years. Yeah, you're stuck uh, an extra two years with your colleague <laughs> in the spaceship. Uh. <laughs> oh, boy. Better get along with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to the 3D model that you mentioned earlier. You probably can't uh, share the results of what you're finding in terms of optimal plant growth. But what are the variables that you guys are playing around with? Is it light? Is it water? What are the variables there? So we, we look at different nutrient concentrations. That's first thing, the different combinations of micro and micronutrients. We also have this carbon dioxide level, of course, because plants really need it to do photosynthesis. Then we have the water, uh, the amount of water that they get. You have temperature, you have relative humidity. Uh, do I forget something? I think that's most of the stuff of the outdoor parameters. And then, of course, you have the microbiomes. That's the most difficult part because that's quite variable. Although you keep it sterile, you will see that there is a lot of microbiomes involved. But if you talk mm. about climate parameters, it's the standard parameters that you also see in greenhouses, that you also see in outdoor grown crops with the same grown variables. And it's a mechanistic model. So if we want to change a specific parameter, it's no problem. Uh, most of the models are developed with a specific background where you're stuck with specific parameters. Uh, but this model is built out of blocks of different parameters so we can change very easily mm. and predict very easily what the outcome will be if we change a specific parameter. I remember last time you mentioned this idea of a virtual day so you can go beyond this 24-hour cycle. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so uh, that's something we use a lot because, yeah, of course, if you're closed off of the outdoor environment, you don't have to take into account the day length. 
So you can really mm. vary and uh, you can set a virtual day length, of course. You can say uh, I, the day is 12 hours or 18 hours or maybe 36 hours. Uh, the only thing you can't do mm. is give the plants 24 hours on 24 hours light because the plant needs a specific night period to change all the starch mm. to internal energy. So if it does photosynthesis, it needs a resting period to change all the sugars it made and put it into a growth. So that's something uh, you have to take into account. But you can really shorten that period to its stress level and then start a new day. But it doesn't have to be as such 24 hours. So what we, for example, do mm. is use day lengths of 12 hours or 18 hours. And we see that's very sufficient for wheat, of course. Mm. For cowpea, then, it's a different story because cowpea is an African crop. It needs a longer day. So then we use longer days. So we can play a bit around. We interfere also from the moment plants set seed. From that day, for example, we can give a longer day. So that's something we can play around with to really optimize the whole process. Do you play around with the luminosity? So the like dimming lights, like at sunrise and sunset? Or is it like when it's daytime, it's a certain... Uh, light in the most in the most optimal setup, we could do that. I did that in the past with other crops where we even varied in wavelengths. So if you give a different red far red ratio, how that's also how the sun is working. There are different ratios in the light. You have red blue, you have far red red, you have also the infrared light, and all those wavelengths and intensity they vary during the day. You could play around with with those wavelengths also in the vertical farming system, but that means that you have a very complicated vertical farming setup and that's not the option we don't have at this moment so the ratios mm. red far red is a fixed ratio but i, I think see. there is indeed there is room for more optimization if you talk about light spectrums that's something mm. we saw already in the past especially with flowering plants if you play around with the ratios then you can even go beyond optimization that's uh, indeed the case i ask because uh, uh this is like not related at all, but I learned recently about human rest and apparently we need about 42% rest per day. So that equates about 10 hours. Now rest can include sleep, but it also includes active rest. So things like mindful eating or just taking a break from, you know, switching gears, daydreaming, things like that. And I feel like the plant equivalent to that is like some level of lower light where the sun's like down on the horizon. But that's so. something growers already do sometimes. Eh? If you look at, uh, I think it's tomato growers in greenhouses, if they end the day, they start lowering the light intensities to let mm. the plant come down to rest, to lower the photosynthetic activity a bit. Otherwise, the plant, if you shut down the lamps in one in one time, the plant keeps active and it keeps transpiring and huh. puts all the moisture in the air. So the result would be if you would shut down all the lamps in, at once, that you get a very humid greenhouse. Huh. So they start lowering down gradually. And that's something they can easily do with LEDs. Uh, that's the benefit of it. If you do it gradually or sh do it in shifts, then you let the plant know, okay, it's time to go to sleep. So that's more or less the same. Mm. Then. Um, Interesting. Okay, so they have a wind down routine also. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Okay, cool. And the lights that you all are using are also LED, right? Yeah, yeah. So we have to use LEDs because otherwise, if you would use the normal grow lamps, yeah, you have a lot of heat that's coming from the lamps. So you need a lot of uh, cooling. So that's something we don't want because we do want to be very sufficient also. 
So in in terms of using energy and turn it into photons of light, so the energy packets in the light source, then I think LEDs is on this moment the most efficient way of doing it. Gotcha. What about the water? Obviously, with a closed system, you can recycle a lot of the water. In theory, in the spaceship, you would carry with you, I'm imagining a tank of water, and then you use Mm -hmm. that throughout the plant cycle. Is that how that works? Yeah. So we have a closed system. Also, what we also are adding is the water that is evaporated by the plants, so transpired by the plants. So we have our drying dehumidifiers into the, the closed biospheres. And the water that comes out of those machines is put back into the system. So for now, I can say that we are reusing 95% of all the water. So that's quite good already. But I think we can go a bit further and go up to 97% maybe. But of course, yeah, when you harvest, you harvest a bit of the moisture. So in the end, you will always lose a bit of water because you get rid of the plants, of course. So if you restart, then you have to put in a bit of new water. But for now, we can already optimize it to 95%. So that's quite good. But it's a closed system. So when the water passes to the roots, it gets extracted again. It goes through filters and then it's reused for a new irrigation. I'm just thinking like, what if there was a miscalculation or a crop failure and suddenly on the spaceship, they don't have enough water and they have to pick between, you know, do I water the plants or do we drink the water ourselves and then maybe starve? But I'm sure there's so many kind of risky situations like that you have to plan for. I think it would be really tricky, actually. Uh, Also, I I learned uh, the last days that I thought it was for one kilo to put it in the spacecraft. It costs uh, thousands and thousands of euros to just send one kilo up to space. So uh, I don't think we will grow literally in space, but it will be more in the planet, I think. Uh, Yeah, it will be more sufficient. Uh... Um, I see. So bringing so all the supplies way, and the seeds with yeah, you. I think that could be a solution uh, and that you, for the traveling, that you use just the things you brought <laughs> with you. Got but it. indeed, yeah, if you had to choose between, between drinking the water <laughs> and give it to the plants, I think, yeah, I don't know what I would choose. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> both, both are bad. Huh? <laughs> if you know it's the answer. Uh, I know. <laughs> it would be a yeah. difficult question, I think. <laughs> Well, I think my human instincts would kick in and I would drink the water, but I would try to make it last as long as possible. Oh man. A drop for each maybe. uh... (laughs) Right. Yeah. Oh man. Um, Last time you also talked about pollination. Uh, Now, did the wheat plants need to be pollinated? So uh, the wheat plants, of course, they are wind pollinators, so they, they pollinate themselves. So there you don't need insects or anything. But of course, we have other plants. We are also thinking about growing other crops, especially when you talk about fruits. Yeah, then you need a pollinator. And that could be a problem in space, of course, because, yeah, insects are not available. Uh, We don't see a lot of bumblebees flying around on Mars. So that's why we have a partner, an industrial partner, who has expertise in developing small drones. So Magix developed, uh, so Magix is the partner. So they developed a small drone that it, can detect the heart of a flower and it really calculates its flying pathway and it flies from one flower to the other to have a, a pollination. They tested it for sunflower and it really works. So that's a start. It sounds very uh, futuristic, but if you think about it, in normal greenhouses where they use LED lights in tomatoes, 
the bumblebees that are used there, they sometimes have difficulties finding their way home because they don't like the blue and specific wavelengths in the light. So they mm. die in the end. So to tackle that problem, you could, for example, use a drone that does a pollination for you. Uh, so that could be an earth application that comes out of it. But of course, mm. you don't hear me say that we don't have to preserve the bees. Eh? That's step number one on earth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that, this is sounding a little uh, bit like Black Mirror. Yeah. I don't think uh, the drone pollinator will uh, solve all the problems on Earth. I think it's more important to pre uh, preserve the bees uh, <laughs> and all the insects yes. that do the pollination for us. I think that's still the best strategy. But if you think of, of specific applications, of course, that's what I meant. But then the drone, of course, could be a valuable alternative. If you think about space traveling, we will not take bumblebees with us. So the drone will, <laughs> can do then uh, the pollination for us. Eh? Oh man, sounds like a nightmare having bees on the on the spacecraft. Imagine that you're stuck with the bee uh, <laughs> in the spacecraft. Oh man, yeah. Then again, maybe rough. it doesn't know how to fly. Then uh, there is no gravity, so oh. maybe that's a solution. Uh. Right, they all yeah. just fly in circles. Yeah, it could be somewhere. that it's flying in circles, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess of all these technologies that you guys are experimenting with and deploying, how much of this, like, what's the plan moving forward, talking practically with getting these technologies deployed on Earth? Are the research partners that you're working with, are they commercializing these? You talked about some of them are existing companies too. But um, yeah, what what's kind of like the, the outcome of all this research? So some of the research is very preliminary. So yeah, that's something we just have to carry on and there will not be on a short term any economical sellable products but for some things of course there is if you think about the connection of a microbiome and enhancing root growth or enhancing plant growth yeah that's something is already applicable on earthly application if you talk about the knowledge that we gain of growing wheat on a more sufficient way in a more stress tolerant way that's also something that's applicable on earth. If we talk about implementing other crops, uh, forgotten crops, maybe in Africa, if we can replace them in a specific percentage into the bread to have a more healthy bread, that's something that's applicable on earth and is a commercial available thing. But some of the stuff is, of course, just pure science eh, on, on this moment. So it will take uh, another few years until we can develop something that we can also uh, use here on earth. Eh? We're always learning and, and we are already uh, thinking about a follow-up. Maybe we can also do something about fermentation and cellar fermentation. So... We're not done yet, of course, it's a long mission. And we, we just start to collaborate with new uh, partners also. So I think a lot of uh, opportunities will still come out in the future. Yeah, definitely. And you all are working directly with the European Space Agency also? So, yeah, they're not a partner inside the project, but uh, we have some contacts over there because yeah, we want to be uh, as applicable as such. We also work together with the Flanders Space Organizations. They also give us valuable input. They steer us a bit. Yeah, you have to take into account this or this. So uh, they're not a direct partner in the project, uh, but they are involved. Yeah. Cool. Well, exciting stuff. I mean, can't wait to see what, what you all come up with in the coming years. Uh, if listeners want to learn more about this initiative, where can they find you guys online? They can find us on our website, spacebakery.com, or 
by visiting Piratos. They follow us on uh, the social media or look at our website. They can find more uh, information on the Space Bakery project and the follow-up missions that we will do. We invite them to join us at the Pura Dome. It's a building where we host our Space Bakery. If they want to visit, they're very welcome to visit us in Brussels. Oh, that sounds like a great field trip. Yeah, definitely. If you're uh, up to it, I would like to invite you uh, and uh, give you a tour around inside our Mission to Mars program. Okay, well, listeners, you heard that open invitation from Bert, whoever wants to join me, (laughs) (laughs) trip to Brussels. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bert. This has been really enlightening. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. You're welcome. You're welcome. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.